This is Christopher Gofford, the writer and host of The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm here with Los Angeles Times Deputy Metro Editor Steve Clow, and we're going to talk about episode two of our podcast. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Chris. Uh, episode two, A Disappearance. We learned more about what happened to Corey Kaufman and how the authorities came to begin to probe deeply into who might have been attached to his disappearance. Yeah, here is how Chief Assistant District Attorney Marlisa Ferreira, who would prosecute the case, described Corey Kaufman to me. So this wasn't a kid who had been a tweaker all his life. This was a really good kid that all of his teachers said nice things about. If you went and you got Turlock teachers to talk about who he was or people that knew him as a child or as a teenager, they all say he was the nicest kid in the world. He'd give you the shirt off his back. At this point in the story, he's still a missing person, though by the end of the episode, they will have found his bones. And in this episode, we hear from Kevin Pickett, uh, who's Corey Kaufman's stepdad, and he's struggling to figure out when exactly uh, his stepson disappeared. Pickett would have trouble keeping his date straight to the great frustration of the investigators. He produced a receipt from Modesto Junk Company on 9th Street. It said that his stepson, Corey, had received... $46 cash for a load of mixed scrap metal on the afternoon of Wednesday, March 28, 2012. Pickett thought that had been the last day he had seen Corey. Here is Kevin Pickett being interviewed by the cops. It had to be the 28th, because that's the same day we did all that. That was the last time you saw him? Yeah, that was the last time I saw him, that day, on this ticket. That's the last ticket we got together. Then Pickett becomes convinced that it was Thursday, March 29th, which is the day he puts on the missing persons flyer as the day his stepson disappeared. And he knew this because that had been the day that he had accompanied Kaufman to the nearby Mulberry Mobile Home Park where Kaufman scored some meth and sheriff's deputies had briefly detained them. This is important, okay? You got to think hard, Kevin. Now i got conflicting stories here. I'm sorry, man. That'd be the 29th. Okay. We also meet Mike Cooley, who's a key character. He's one of the missing man's friends. He's a fellow thief and addict. And he was uh, one of the last people to see Corey Kaufman alive. We also, in this episode, we hear secretly recorded conversations between Frank Carson and his mother as police begin to look at him as a suspect. We hear that conversation with his wife, Georgia, in which she asks the question, did they find any bodies, which uh, they interpret in uncharitable way. Here is Carson talking about his conversation with Georgia, in which she tells her their place was raided, and she asks, did they find any bodies? Carson says Georgia and her daughter, Christina, were on the road coming back to Modesto from Comic-Con in San Diego when he called them. On July 16th, 2012, I did not want them to come home and find the house wrecked. So I thought I'd pre-warn them, and I did. And there's a phone call where I'm telling George about all this, that they had used cadaver dogs. And bless her heart, she she was driving. They were down around Bakersfield, and they were going to get here in about three and a half, four hours. Anyway, that's when the Georgia, bless her heart, made this fateful, asked this fateful question. You know, she said, well, did they find any bodies? And I go, no, hell no. Anyway, that statement was quoted to Manukian, to Zuniga, 
to everybody. Their Amy Warren, that that was a statement of consciousness of guilt when Georgia said, did they find any bodies? So that got Georgia arrested. It got her incarcerated. I mean, there's no allegation that we had multiple bodies. And if Georgia was in on some sort of knowledge, she wouldn't say, did they find any bodies? She would say, did they find the body? If we'd have buried it there. This episode, like many of the others in this podcast, has uh, a lot of characters, a lot of complex layers. And I wonder if you could, before we get into some of the specifics of the episode, give us the sort of the elevator speech version of where we are thus far. We know that Corey Kaufman has disappeared. That was sometime in probably late March of 2012. And in this episode, the authorities... uh, come into contact with Frank Carson. But if you could just remind us of sort of how we got to this point in their investigation. So at this point in the story, authorities are beginning to take a hard look at Frank Carson as a suspect in the disappearance and possible death of Corey Kaufman. They believe that uh, Carson, in his frustration with thieves, became homicidally enraged and uh, enlisted some local men to visit vigilante justice on Corey Kaufman. And uh, this is the episode in which we see them closing in on Carson and we see Carson's reaction, which is uh, not to cooperate with their investigation. He does not trust them. He knows some of these cops from way back. He does not trust them and does not believe that their intentions are good or that their investigation is going to be fair. So they show up at his office in 2012, and they want to ask him questions. And he tells them many, many times to put it in writing. That exchange is uh, quite fascinating, and it ends with the cops leaving. At some point, they do provide written questions. Get out. Open, close the door. You're not gonna, Get out. You're not going to answer any questions. Get out. You're not gonna, Get out. You're not you help. shut up. You're not going to help. Get out. You're not going to help. Get out. Can you I, don't talk to me. I can talk Get to out. You. No, you don't. I'm doing Frank. a Get out. Frank. You're under, can I tell you, you know why what? we're here, Frank? You're both under arrest for, for trespassing. Frank. Frank, can well, I tell you I'm why we're here? I'm place you both under arrest. Evers, I won't because Evers left. Get out so we can lock the door. Lock. I'm going to lock the door. Can I tell you something real quick? Get out. No. I don't want to hear anything. Oh, I'm tired of your abuse and your threats. All right, Mr. Carson, it's not going to go no, away. No, you're, you're yeah. going to take... It's not going to go away. You're going to take... Gonna go you're going to, the police are going to be here. And I'm happy to tell them... That's that. fine. I'm going to be happy Close to tell Close the them. door. It's not going to work. Let go of my door. It's not going to work this time, Mr. Carson. You're under investigation. We'd like to talk to you. You need to leave. What did you make of that, that whole set piece that leads to its own complicated tango of Frank, his wife, and the members of law enforcement all having conversations at the same time. And really quickly, here's the reaction to the incident I'm talking about from Carson's wife, Georgia, and her friend, Mary Martinez. It was after closing, and nevertheless, even if we invited them to leave, they should have gone. They were waiting for Frank to flip out, is Mm -hmm. what they were doing. They were poking the bear. Yeah, and uh, Frank got on the phone and made the 911 call. Yeah, I mean, the DA's office characterizes Carson's behavior during that one visit as a reflection of consciousness of guilt because he doesn't want to cooperate with them uh, because he asked for a warrant. 
They say, why does he do this? Why not just cooperate? Of course, if you're a defense attorney and you don't trust the people who are coming to interrogate you, it seems to me as predictable as anything that the defense attorney would ask for a warrant and would not cooperate. I don't know why they would have really expected anything else from Carson, but they did point to this piece of evidence as an example of Carson's volatility. He does yell, he does scream, he calls 911, they draw up a long list of questions. He uh, initially says, put your questions in writing and I'll answer them. I think he develops the impression that he has nothing to gain by cooperating with authorities in this investigation, that their minds are made up and that anything he tells them will somehow be hammered into, uh, into the theory that they're purveying. You know, I wondered when I listened to uh, the second part of that where Frank calls 911, it seemed to me I picked up a little bit on his uh, theatricality when he's on the line with the 911 dispatcher giving a play-by-play as to what these authorities were doing. Uh, now he's got the gun. I see his gun. And it, it felt like he was almost uh, playing a little bit to the crowd there or to the cameras or, or whoever. I, wa- I wonder if it struck you that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was a showman, and this this does go to his, uh, his talent for theatricality and uh, hyperbole. You also wonder how much uh, extra peril he might have been inviting if uh, the 911 dispatcher had uh, interpreted this to mean it was, say, an armed robbery or something. So yeah, he's, uh, he's kind of playing with fire there, but he's also not out of control. It's an anger, it's a rage that you're hearing from him, but it seems to me a controlled, a modulated sort of rage that is uh, strategic as well. Did it strike you that way, Steve? Yeah, I mean, at one point, you think he's about to flip out and really do something, and then he says, I'll conduct a citizen's arrest. Okay, that seemed, you know, like a fairly uh, measured uh, response by someone who is facing people with guns in his office. I also, in this episode, we also hear from other people as well. Uh, Big Mike Cooley, who is a really important character in this entire saga, And we hear Mike uh, interviewed by authorities and professes his deep fondness for for Corey Kaufman, the the victim. And I wonder if you could tell us more about Mike Cooley and what happens when the police uh, learn about him, get interested in him, and uh, come to talk to him. We need to know the truth, Mike. It's not fair to this kid that you say you loved like a son. Let me tell you something. Okay. Okay. If I knew who killed that kid... They wouldn't be walking right now. I love that kid with my fucking heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mike, Mike, I, I appreciate it, all right? I really do. Your sentiment for him is very heartwarming, and I, I mean that, okay? Because if I had somebody who I cared about like a son, I would feel the same way. You're protecting the guys that put Corey in the grave because you're scared. But the gig's up, all right? We can't help you, all right? We can't help you at all unless you're willing to help yourself out. Yeah, so Mike Cooley lives right next door to Carson's lot in Turlock, and there was evidence that Carson was frustrated with uh, the thieves who were stealing from his lot. He would report uh, over the years that vintage signs had been stolen. They would just vanish from his lot and reappear at an antique store. People would take wheels from his lot, tools, antique frying pans, collectible automobile manuals, He found that uh, the locks had been broken off some of the containers on his lot. And at one point, a Turlock police officer 
even finds Carson, according to a report, in his Toyota pickup truck down the block from his lot. He's crouched in the driver's seat as if to hide, and he explains that he's watching his property. To the investigators, to the DA's office, this establishes that he's uh, taking the law into his own hands by doing active surveillance on his property. Michael Cooley, who is admittedly a former member of the, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang, who we meet in this episode, he uh, was one of the thieves who was taking Carson's stuff. He says at the time in 2012, he was doing heroin and meth, mostly heroin, and he would climb through a hole in the fence to get to Carson's property. Like a lot of the other local thieves, one of the challenges of the case from the start had been the near impossibility of disentangling kernels of real evidence from wild rumors, self-serving fabrication, and drug psychosis fantasy peddled by the meth addicts or cranksters that populated the world that Kaufman and Cooley had moved through. Because you know on the streets there's a lot of crankster talk, right? Yeah, there is. Okay. I don't do crank, I do uh, heroin. Okay, I'm just saying, there's a lot of crankster talk, right? Until you go and interview them and you find out where they got the story and how they got the story and you go, okay, well, this is just from another crankster that heard it from another crankster that heard it from another crankster. And Mike Cooley would steal from Carson's yard and sell what he took. And he was quoted as saying everything was out there, books, pictures, china, stainless steel, teapots. And when he testified, he said he would pack these, uh, these stolen goods in a car and uh, the car would be driven to his sister's house. And when Carson came by asking to search his house and his barn, Cooley says he let Carson do this uh, and Carson found nothing. So by Cooley's own admission, he'd uh, stolen from Carson and deceived Carson. And Cooley says Carson came by and confronted him, called him a thief, called him a punk, called his sister names. And Cooley says, I told him to get off my property. I spit in his face. And again, at trial, Carson's lawyer, Percy Martinez, he confronts Cooley with his behavior and he says, you took all you could carry, didn't you? In reference to stealing from Carson. And Cooley says, and probably more, yeah. So that is one of the, uh, the key witnesses that the DA's office puts on the stand to uh, make the case against Frank Carson, Mike Cooley, um, who supposedly was uh, one of the last people to see Corey Kaufman alive. He says that, on the last day he saw Kaufman, they were drinking rum and Cokes and smoking a joint. And uh, Cooley sees these irrigation pipes on Carson's lot. Kaufman wants to take them. They had planned to go over there. Cooley changes his mind. He says Kaufman went and never came back. But the defense portrays Cooley as a witness who's cooperating in part because he's picked up a serious charge and wants a break. So not long after Kaufman disappears... Cooley picks up a charge um, for possession of methamphetamine with intent to sell. And he's looking at some serious time. He's looking at uh, 10 to 12 years. And the DA tells him this. And one of the cops says, he's been on the phone with, uh, with Kirk Bunch and says, his feeling is if Mike doesn't want to be cooperative, just hook him up and arrest him. So Cooley admits on the stand that he's uh, finally allowed to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. He's in custody for just four months. And it becomes one of the government's key witnesses. These are things that the defense uh, underscores during the uh, during the prelim and trial. A lot going on with Big Mike Cooley. We also are introduced to 
two really important recurring characters in this series, the Atwal brothers and their liquor store, the Pop and Cork in Turlock. You visited the Pop and Cork. You talked to uh, the Atwals. Uh, what struck you about that place and its role in the community? And what what was your impression of, of them and their relationship with their customers and, and their town? Well, they're really well known in the area. I hung out there uh, more than once watching customers come in and out. Talking to uh, the brother that was there then was uh, was Bobby Atwal. Apparently uh, well-liked. There was a steady stream of people. They were active in uh, sponsoring youth sports. At the time this all happened, they were on very good terms with local police, uh, highway patrolmen. Some of them were uh, Turlock officers even, who would uh, come by the store and uh, hang out in a back room. They had a little bar that they set up in the back room where uh, where the cops would uh, would drink after hours. And this was uh, suspicious to the DA's office. They didn't understand why local cops would be hanging out at a local liquor store. They would hold barbecues for them in the side yard and so forth. When you ask about it, the the answer seems to be that it was a more comfortable and a safer feeling place for local cops to hang out than uh, the local bars where they'd have to worry about being confronted by people they just ticketed or had to arrest. You know, it's a small town. So it, it felt like a safe place for these highway patrolmen to uh, to unwind after hours. And they became very close to the Atwal brothers. Now, this seemed to the DA investigators extremely suspicious. That's the story with the pop and cork and Turlock. One of the things that is so fascinating and so so compelling about this podcast are the voices the distinct sound of so many different people, from Frank himself, the cops, the Atwals, Mike Cooley, Robert Woody, whom we'll hear more from later. Perhaps my favorite voice so far is Frank's mother, Valley Carson. And there's this great moment where she calls Frank on the phone. It's a recorded conversation and she's 91 years old, and she, of course, has to identify herself to her son by saying, Frank, this is your mother. I wondered what kind of character she is and how she fits into this whole landscape. Frank Carson's mom, Valley, came uh, with her husband, uh, Phallus, from, uh, from Texas after World War II and put down roots in Modesto. And Carson was always very proud of his, uh, his Texas background was raised in a family that, that he described as uh, loving, though his parents expected that he was uh, never to give up, that he was to be uh, tenacious and uh, and hardworking and uncomplaining. And his mother would show up every day for trial. I remember her sitting there in the front row taking notes through all the testimony, and she would bring him uh, sandwiches in a Ziploc bag. And afterward, uh, he would walk her down the aisle by the arm. The way we taught our children... And the way I was taught, the police were always right. You didn't question anything. And all our lives we thought they wouldn't do anything underhanded. They wouldn't do anything dishonest. And we taught our children that. And since this has all happened, we can't do that anymore. So what else uh, in episode two? We The episode concludes with uh, the haunting discovery of remains up in the mountains that appear to be Corey Kaufman. This episode sort of shows the uh, investigation beginning to gather momentum and begin to focus on Frank Carson and, and others. 
what else about this episode should should we know? Well, it's uh, worth dwelling for a minute on how the authorities got the warrant to start surveilling and start searching Carson stuff to begin with. I wanted to make sure that part was clear. And how it happened uh, is very interesting. Carson kind of gave his enemies a gift. Inadvertently, he gave them a gift. He did something that I think he must have regretted. So two months after Corey Kaufman disappears, Carson tells Robert Woody and Bobby Atwal, both of whom are former clients of his, to keep an eye on his property in Turlock. And they have a low-level confrontation with Michael Cooley, who's been stealing from Carson. Woody and Atwal show up outside Cooley's house, and one of them says, what are you looking at? I thought you were my homeboy. I'm not your homeboy, that sort of thing. And Cooley tells this to the cops. He says, hey, the pop and cork guys came by and kind of menaced me. And that's it. That's what the cops need. Now the cops have a link to Carson. They have the rough outlines of a theory, which is that Carson enlisted the pop and cork guys as his henchmen in making Corey Kaufman disappear two months earlier. So that is what permits them to, uh, to build this bridge or to attempt to build this bridge between the disappearance of Corey Kaufman and uh, Frank Carson. Now, it's possible to see Carson's behavior here as an argument for his innocence because it's stipulated that in late May 2012, he asks Bobby Atwal and Robert Woody to do this favor, right, of checking out his Turlock lot to see if Michael Cooley is still next door. But the defense would say, wouldn't this be an uncharacteristically stupid thing for Carson, the supposed mastermind, to do if he had asked these same men to do the murder on the lot two months earlier. It would seem that if he had anything to do with the murder, this brilliant lawyer, this mastermind, this puppet master would not inject himself into the case in this way. And so in that light, the favor he asks of uh, Bobby Atwal and Robert Woody in late May would seem evidence that his conscience uh, was clean at that point. One other thing that's uh, that's interesting in reading the search warrants, the applications for the search warrants, they give you an indication of where the cops are coming from at that point. For example, they suspected that Carson had used what he'd learned as a criminal defense attorney representing uh, killers to hide Corey Kaufman's body. They believe he's using specialized knowledge that he picked up as a criminal defense attorney, uh, which will be a theme in this case. Uh, it'll be the DA's explanation, by the way, for why they could never find any physical evidence. So in one of the warrants, Detective Corey Brown, who's a sheriff's detective, Stanislaus County Sheriff's Detective Corey Brown, he notes that Carson had recently represented a guy accused of killing a woman and then burying her body. And this suggested that Carson had maybe studied his client's methods. Uh, this was a case involving a defendant named Russell Jones. And Jones had killed a woman in 1999 and buried her in a three-foot grave in a forest up on his parents' property and then led them to her body in uh, 2007. He led police to the body and he got 11 years for manslaughter. And uh, Carson represented him. He thought it was uh, too harsh a sentence. And he was quoted as saying, I think it sends a terrible message for cooperating with the police. If you give police an inch, you'll be crucified. 
This is Carson being quoted in the paper after his guy got 11 years. And so the warrant, the application for the warrant to look into Carson says, and I've, I've got the quote here, during that prosecution, F. Carson certainly became aware of the advantages to a homicide defendant who successfully conceals the body. So it's interesting. They're using Carson's professional expertise against him. It contributes to their suspicions. But of course, by this logic, any prosecutor or homicide detective or true crime writer uh, who has an acquaintance with, with the ways of murder and body concealment would also be giving people cause for suspicion, not to mention the editors of true crime writers. <laughs> you mentioned, we've talked a little bit about Robert Woody, and he is uh, figures prominently in episode three. I wonder if you could offer just a little bit of a preview of, of what we'll hear then. Yeah, Robert Woody was the handyman at the Pop and Cork, and he will be the key to this entire case. He will be the government's star witness. He is the only eyewitness who supposedly witnesses the murder itself. Whether he did, whether anything he is saying on the stand holds up to scrutiny will be the key issue of this whole case. Okay. Well, thanks, Chris. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, LA Times subscribers. We appreciate you tuning in. And if you have a story tip or a question about our podcast, feel free to email me at Christopher.Gofford. That's G-O-F-F-A-R-D at LATimes.com. And uh, we will talk to you for bonus episode three. The Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. On this bonus episode, our editor was Steve Clow, our executive producer, Abby Fentress Swanson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Our theme song was made by Alex McGinnis. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Asal Esanapur. <laughs> 